Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Before you listen to this podcast, be aware this show often uses very naughty language. If you don't like that, you shouldn't listen. Send your complaints to I am a whiny baby with no sense of humor at nightstory.com or stop by the studio. I'll take you for a ride to a story of my choosing. Hi, this is Daniel Morton, purveyor of the finest bullshit. Gesticulator, fabricator, equivocator, and bovine defecator from the UK. And I am a fan of the Ninth Story podcast. I recommend you listen whenever you can. This is my music box. Can you hear the music? It plays for you. The music is calling for you to make a choice. My building has nine floors, and each leads to a very different place. My lift can go places you'd never expect, and it's waiting for you. Come along and take a ride on the lift. Find the lift at victoriaslift.com, and also in iTunes at itunes.victoriaslift.com. Hey there. Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. So today our guest is Richard Ainsworth, and he is the author and creator of Widdershins, the series, uh, which is a paranormal fantasy series that centers around a sleepy little village. And I don't want to get, I mean, it's your story, Richard. So for those that aren't familiar with your work, you're going to do a much better job of setting it up than I would. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the world and, and what goes on and kind of some of your favorite elements? Well, Widdershins um, is a fake name for a real place. Um, all the history that's put into the stories uh, is real. And it's actually, if you can, you can find it on Google Earth. If you look in Bradshaw or Harwood or Ainsworth or Ramsbottom, they're there. There are a whole set of villages in the north of England. Um, the place that I talk about, St. Maxentius Church, actually exists. 
it's the only church in the world called St. Maxentius. And I got involved in writing these stories by, I was down at the church uh, doing some photography. I'm a graphic designer by trade. So I was doing some photography in the churchyard and the vicar came up to me and said, what do you think you're doing? And I said, taking photographs. And and then we started talking and it turns out that he was a vicar who'd gone to school with my teacher and he was a vicar too. And they turned out to know each other and then they turned out to know me and it all got very spooky. That is kind of spooky. You (laughs) can't write that kind of stuff. (laughs) It got even more spooky when I started to dig into the history of the church uh, because the vicar himself was convinced, uh, although he couldn't prove it at the time, it was was a Knights Templar church. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. The area goes right back here, right to the Roman era, where... The Ainsworth Road is a Roman road going between Manchester, Mancumia, and Tadcaster in Yorkshire called Calcaria. And it cuts right through here. The church itself, where it's all based around, goes right back to the Norman era, William the Conqueror. And being the only church in the world called St. Maxentius, um, I wanted to find out about this little known saint. It turns out it was a French saint who baptised King Clovis. And Queen Mathilde of the Merovingian line. Ah, yes. So, so why would a little-known saint be revered in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> it turns out that this area was given by William the Conqueror to his co- cousin, Roger de Poitiers. Roger de Poitiers was um, basically a bastard offspring of King Clovis. So we have King Clovis, we have Roger de Poitiers, but why? This church that I go to um, was built in the 1860s. It's the second church on the, well, third church on the site. The very first churches, going back to the Norman era, were called St. Mary's. Now, in church tradition in the UK, a church can only be called St. This, That, or the Other before a certain date if either the saint had been there died there, mm-hmm. family was there, or those relics there. Mm-hmm. So, the church in the second era, which is now called St. Maxentius, um, was rebuilt by a priest called Galindo in the 1860s. Now, Galindo is a Portuguese name, and he'd come from Ireland. You don't get very many Church of England priests from Ireland of Portuguese extraction. No. 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 And all the all the symbolism around the church um, was m- very Masonic. So I started knocking on the doors of the Freemasons, and they came around and said, oh, yes, yes, it looks quite Masonic. You know, there's a guy above the door with an eye, um, an eye mask on and a noose around his neck. That, you know, that's kind of Masonic. And Just the um, yeah, and then there's the little symbols as well, like you know, oh, compasses and things carved in the brickwork, and you know, maybe. <laughs> so, said, uh, so I said, well, what's about the Templars? And of course, in the UK, the Templars are linked to the Masons, so I got passed up the ladder. Um, I think it was they'd rather have me inside the tent peeing out than inside outside the tent peeing in. <laughs> it was one of those sorts of conversations. Yeah. Um, and then 
I got a knock on the door from a couple of people who happened to be Knights Templar, as as you do in the middle of the night. And we went down to the church and they looked around and we went, ah, we think you found a hidden gem. Because, aha, uh-huh, because <laughs> there are certain uh, statues, and it's all on the website, the pictures, of on the Lady Chapel, there are two heads. One is of a, um, like what turns out to be a crusader knight, and the other is a lady with a veil across her face in the Middle Eastern style. And they said that symbolizes there are secrets here not to be sp- spoken of. <laughs> so essentially, you found some place that was so obscure that even the secret organizations that were involved in it didn't remember that it was there? Because in the late Victorian era, at Freemasons Hall, there was a big fire and a lot of the paperwork was destroyed. Uh, and then in the oh. Second World War, they had the Blitz in London where all the paperwork's held and that destroyed even more. So a lot of things had slipped through the net. A lot of it was normal tradition as well. So it, it just disappeared, as it were. So are you now <laughs> an honorary Templar? No, <laughs> absolutely. Not. He wouldn't be able to write these books if he That's was. Right. <laughs> well, well, no. So it's fair to the it's fair to the Templars and the Masons. They've put me in touch with a lot of historians, mm-hmm. and I'm given um, access to their archives, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, the church does not face east west, like most churches. It's well, off by friends. 33 degrees, ah. which will get the conspiracy theorists going absolutely crazy. <laughs> 33 degrees. Yeah, the 33 degrees of the Masons. There you go. And it's also, um, when it was rebuilt, it was moved away from the original site of the original church, and the tower was left on its own. Now, there are movable and immovable symbols within Freemasonry in the Knights Templar, and apparently a tower is one of the immovable ones. So the tower is still the original tower dating back to the 1400s. Inside that tower, we have... Second oldest bell in the UK. Wow. Yeah. Just hiding now. It's meant to say around it, Ave Maria Grazia Plena. I've been up there and it doesn't say that going around it. According to the Bishop of Manchester, oh, they made some spelling mistakes. Hmm. Hmm. You don't, if you, when you're casting a bell, you don't <laughs> make spelling mistakes. <laughs> so I looked at it as a graphic designer rather than a metalsmith. And what I was told were casting, when the bell's cast, they have little like round bits where the, the uh, metal flows in. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked at those and I thought, well, if I use those as full stops as a designer to break the words up, mm-hmm. what would it come out like? And then I remembered, well, before the church was called St. Maxentius, it was called St. Mary's. What is it actually saying? So I looked at the letters and I realized some of them weren't Latin, they were Greek letters. Now, Mary Magdalene, if you go to the Gnostic Bibles, Mary Magdalene was from a good family. She wasn't a prostitute. That's a lot of baloney. Yeah, it's one mm-hmm. sentence, and, and it's basically two sentences that got run together from what I understand or what I've read. Yes, yes, that's that's what I believe as well. So the place where she came from, uh, Bethany, um, spoke Aramaic and also in, also Greek. So I thought, right, let's separate it out. You've got two languages here. You've got the Latin and you've got the Greek. And then there was um, a cross pate on the bell as well, which is basically like like a Maltese cross. So I thought, well, that's obviously a symbol for either the beginning of the words or Christ, Christos. Hmm. 
separated them out, and the words came out. I am here by I am here from overseas by grace of a relative. So we're going back. That's now. not a spelling error. <laughs> That's a no, message. No, no. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so now I've got the links to Mary Magdalene, <laughs> because Saint Mary's. All the time I was being told, oh, it's Mary the Virgin, Mary the Virgin, mm-hmm. and as as legend has it, down in in Somerset, Gloucester, and um, Glastonbury. They believe that Joris of Arimathea and Mary came across from France over to here, and then they went north. But nobody's sure where north. Maybe. Uh, Someone knows. You. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. I'm blending all what I can find out, and then, like Dan Brown did, just tip a bit in there and give it a stir. Yeah. See what happens. So then I've mixed all that history with stories I've been finding out of other friends and people around the area, because this place is full of mad, mad, crazy things. Um, close to us is a place called Turton Tower. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Reeve Towers in the US. You know what a Reeve Tower is? Mm-hmm. Right. During the Dark Ages, um, people who, lords of the manor who couldn't afford castles, would build a square tower. And when the bad guys came around, they locked the tower, staying in here, a bit like the Alamo. We're shutting up shop. Good night. <laughs> and they wait till the bad guys buggered off. And then they come out. Certain Tower is one such tower. However, in Certain Tower, and I can send you the imagery, um, has got a big stained glass window to the Steiner family. The Steiner family were the German Teutonic Knights Templar. <laughs> ah, so, okay. So what have we got here? Within a mile and a half of this church, which is dedicated to the Templars, we've got the German Templars up the road. There's also um, paperwork from 1946-47, similar to Roswell, about UFO sightings at Turton Tower. Mm. And there's a landing, there's a circular area, which is now a rose garden at Turton Tower, which was burnt, a burnt circle, when they now got a rose area. So we've got got so many wacky things in the small area. Oh, yeah. Um, so, sorry, I've I, I jumped a bit. Going back to Galindo, um, when I speak to the Templars, they told me that during between the years 1700 and 1900, um, the Vatican sent out emissaries, regardless of denomination, to look after areas of interest or to keep the lid on things in places. Mm-hmm. Galindo um, appeared in the UK, appeared in uh, Bradshaw, the little village, and he applied for what's called the St. Anne's Benefice. The St. Anne's Benefice was set up by the Queen, Queen Anne, to look after impoverished priests. So it was, it was kind of like, you know, social security for priests. Right. In poor areas. And this was quite a poor area at the time. However, he got refused it because, gosh, remember, this is 1840, 1845. He was earning £1,000 sterling a year from property he owned in Ireland. Hmm. That's not... Why would a priest who's earning that end up in a little backwater place in Lancashire? Yeah. So there's more digging going on there. And I've seen all this paperwork because um, I'm a, a member of the parish council and I've got access to the, the old deeds going right the way back to the 1820s. Wow. It also turns out that Galindo's 
um, Galindo took over St. Maxentius, or was, was it called St. Anne's then, from a guy who was a great friend of the Duke of Sussex in 1813. The Duke of Sussex in 1813 was responsible for setting up the new form of the Knights Templar. Ah, uh, okay. So it's all so there's all of these uh, things like looping yeah. back into this one place. Yeah. <laughs> but according to the birth records I've seen, his sister died of, of um, oh, uh, consumption, tuberculosis, uh, when she was 18. Mm-hmm. So Galindo turns up here with his sister. So whether it was his real sister or a um, priesthood type sister, that's what I'm digging. I'm digging more into that as well. I got you. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry if I'm boring. Just say Rick. No, no, I'm, I'm I'm silent because I'm fascinated. <laughs> I know I am too. I'm just like wow. I so, feel yeah. like I feel like you're Alice going down the rabbit hole right now. Well, Everything gets even Oh well, let's because, get to the um, even stranger because I, I can't yeah. imagine it getting stranger. So we've got this priest living here with his sister. <laughs> And the mill owner of the area is a guy called Thomas Hardcastle. Now, Thomas Hardcastle is a very interesting character because he um, was your typical mill owner uh, from the Victorian era. It seems a very hard person, very um, tough with people. But during the Civil War, the American Civil War, he was one of the Lancashire guys who refused to use Southern cotton. So much so that there was mill workers and people dying in the northwest of England. And what he did to all his mill workers, he said, that's all right, don't worry. All his houses went, then went rent-free. And he made sure every week the mill workers had food to eat until the American Civil War ended. Hmm. So he was a very dupe, complicated character. Right. Galindo introduced Mr. Hardcastle to Freemasonry. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In the stained glass window in St. Maxentius Church, there is actually a pit, there is depicted within the stained glass window, Galindo is in the stained glass window doing the adoration of Christ. On the window one along, we have Hardcastle looking away like that from the cross. And around him are forget me nots. Forget me nots are a Masonic flower. They're, they're, they were what were growing on um, Hiram Abiff's grave. Um, after the building of Solomon's Temple. So you've got uh, Hardcastle there with the flower saying, basically, I'm a mason. But the looking away from the cross is also the Knights Temple thing of denying the crucifixion. Templars do not believe Christ was crucified. Hmm. I'm learning so much about both of these right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much I had no idea about. (laughs) So we've got all these mad things like this in this little church. So I, I wanted to put all this history down, but not be dry as dust. So I then started talking to other friends of stories that have happened to them. Like I've got friends who are, who are in the police, got friends who are lawyers. What, what stories have we got? Let's mix those up and create characters like Mayor Whittle, like, mm-hmm. like Malcolm, who's a, who's a book dealer, who happens to be based on the, my editor, Steve Balshaw, who is a book dealer. Mm-hmm. And then start dropping these in as tidbits. The biggest one, um, I'll tell you about now, uh, but it's not been released yet, won't be for released for quite a while, is we have a link to Jack the Ripper, an actual proven link. 
Whoa. <laughs> you've got Galindo, you've got his sister. Two girls pre-Jack the Ripper in the 1860s were murdered in the area and were found in the stream next to the church. If you Google Earth, say, uh, say Maxentius Church Bradshaw, it's there you can see it all. So these two bodies were found there, Ripper-esque. And yet the prisoner, the, uh, the perpetrator, was never brought to justice. The detective at the time was stopped halfway through the investigation. Well, that's so interesting. you're thinking, where's my link to the Ripper here? The link to the Ripper is very simple. In Edgeworth, which is the village next door to Bradshaw, was a doctor who happened to be the understudy to Dr. Gull, Queen Victoria's doctor, whose name was always in the frame for being the Ripper. Right. And he used to come back to Ainsworth and Edgeworth whenever he felt the pressures of London were too much. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm digging in there. I'm, luckily, I've got a friend who's in the police force, and he's helping me go through police archives to see what we can find. But it's all based around um, a detective called Caminada. Now, Caminada was, which Conan Doyle used to write to Caminada to base Sherlock Holmes on. If Caminada um. had been from London... There would be TV series about them. There'd be all sorts of things. And it's actually been uh, mentioned in the, the new TV sh- series, Sherlock, which you'll know as elementary. Yes. And Caminada mentioned in that. He was, he came, Caminada came from nothing. He's, he was um, Italian father, Irish mother, born in the poorest part of Manchester. He came from nothing. And he's worked his way up to the top of the police force in the Victorian era. When he died, it turns out that I'd been given 10% of all his earnings throughout his life away to single-parent families. Aww. The thing that Caminada couldn't do, though, he could never become a Mason at the time because he was a staunch Roman Catholic. So there was the, there was the religion bar there. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that Caminada mm-hmm. had stumbled on something when he was doing the investigation and was, um, how could we put it, um, a gloved hand stopped him going any further. Right. <laughs> we put it that mm. way. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, again, these are all the things that I'm going to drip feed out into the stories. Because if I, if I just blurt it all out, it's like, oh, it's another Ripper story. Oh, it's another this. Oh, it's another that. But I want to mix them up with humor where people can identify with different characters and then these stories start to come in. Like the spirit of Caminada comes into one. Um, I've got friends who, who actually run the local Chinese restaurant. And they're giving me stories about the illegal gambling dens that go on. Ah, so okay. that's, wow. that's why you've seen in the um, Widow Jern, the Widow um, Bugle, the advert for Holy Fook, mm-hmm. which is the Chinese takeaway, which then becomes part of the story. So does the Amrit Star. My friend, a friend I went to school with, his father was Sikh, his mother was Irish. Confused boy. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me was mad, madly, madly, madly into 60s soul music. And the 60s fashions. Yeah. So we both had Lambrettas, but he had turban on. And that's where I based the restaurant on room. So it's all it's all common experience. Because I believe the old adage, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And it'll become mm-hmm. true. I, that's what I really firmly believe in. So all the real crazy characters, they're true. My friend Simon. That's fantastic. My friend Simon is a lawyer. And he was telling me stories Um I asked him, what's the most stupid law, law um, court practice he'd have to do? 
And he said, oh, that was when somebody burnt down the nightclub. And your pardon. He said, well, mm-hmm. the nightclub was coming on hard times and they couldn't afford to pay the bouncer, you know, the doorman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the doorman apparently wasn't the brightest. So they said to him, oh, we've run out of money, but if, if we close the nightclub tonight and you burn it down, we can claim the insurance and we can give you your money plus a little bit more if you do that for us. So, okay. <laughs> so he does that. He locks the nightclub door, gets two, um, two gallon t- tins of petrol, starts throwing them about the place, and gets to the dance floor, throws it all over the dance floor, gets himself to the corner, and sets fire to it. That's where he realizes a mistake. He's in the corner <laughs> of the nightclub, and everyone oh, no. smoke. He panics, <laughs> tries to run out, kicks over the jerry can full of petrol, up he goes like a kebab. Oh, no. Oh, no. The fire brigade come in and rescue him, cart him off to hospital, and then he gets arrested for arson by the police. <laughs> well, he's got third degree burns in his back. <laughs> not an expert arsonist. No, he, no, no. He, not he even a hobby. He himself in the corner. He like uh, draped himself with oil in the corner and then set fire to yeah. it. <laughs> this is going in with oceans. These are the these are the stories we like, folks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Now, you know, it's and it's funny that, uh, you know, you talk about bringing the history through story and, and that sort of thing, because yeah. I think that's what we always try to do. I mean, people are bored by facts, but if there's a story that they can relate to and things that they can yeah. find interesting, that's what pulls you in. I had uh, the opportunity to talk to a historian uh, by the name of David Nassau early when I first started doing the show, and he wrote the uh, biography of Joseph Kennedy bootlegger and gun runner well and see that's the funny thing well he, he mentioned that whenever he did his talk that as hard as he tried he could not prove that he was a bootlegger he's like i did so much hmm. research expecting and looking to find that and he's like but there's no proof i couldn't find it as much as i tried so he either did a really really good job of hiding it or i don't know but um he was irish of course he's a bootlegger <laughs> My best friend's family's Irish, and they're bootlegs. They make it themselves. Cuts <laughs> <laughs> me. It's the law. Yeah, but uh, so so David had said that you know, as a historian, that what he does is he he's not a biographer because he writes these biographies. He's a cool. historian that tells his story through the lives of people, and I think that that was one of the most interesting ways of putting it. And I think that's what we all try to do as writers and as storytellers yeah. is we try to bring you truth through lies and through a situation that you can relate to and be entertained by. Mm-hmm. It's like Winston Churchill said, um, the truth is so precious. It must be cloaked in a veil of lies. Yes. And, and as storytellers, that's what we do. We try to get to a point, but it's up to us how we get to the point and how sugary mm-hmm. coated we make it. Right. Right. You've done a ton of real world research to get to the point where you can actually tell these stories. And, and I'm curious, did that, how did that start for you? Like when you were taking the pictures, how fast after that did you start going down this trail where you're like, I'm just going to be writing stories about this? Because you said you're a graphic designer by trade, yes. which is definitely a type of storytelling, I feel. Anything that we create visually, verbally, auditory, it's all storytelling in its own way. But this is a yeah. completely different path that I'm sure you weren't planning on taking initially. True. Very, very true. Um, at first, it was my own amusement. 
because I'm, I suppose I'm just nosy. I just want to know. <laughs> right. And then when I started to bore people at dinner parties with, did you know? I've become rather like the guy in the Monty Python film who, um, you know, in the life of Brian, he, yeah. he was in a little hole for 30 years and didn't say a word. And then as soon as he got out, you couldn't shut him up. Yeah. <laughs> I've become that guy. That's tremendous. <laughs> So it, it, uh, probably the same day as I was taking the photos there and then speaking to David, the, the rector. Yeah. That's when it, yeah, that's when it started to kick in. And then when um, I wrote them down and people were amused by them, that was petrol to the flames because then it was like, oh, <laughs> I can do this. Oh, right. My biggest problem has been getting a publisher because every time I've been to see um, an agent or a publisher, because Wood Oceans is so big and there's, we've got 30 odd stories planned and plotted out and they all interlink. They say to me, what have you written before? And I said, well, I've written articles for magazines. I've done um, wording for brochures um, because I do copywriting as well for mm-hmm. graphic design. And so, yes, but what stories have you written before? I said, here they are. No, 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 no. You know, somebody's never written before can't do this <coughs> well it, there there it is and there are the stories and there they are and no 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 so then when they actually a couple of agents have read them and a couple of publishers very well-known publishers have kept me on a leash for three four years oh we're interested we're interested we're interested mm-hmm. but never committed because they then came back after they read them and said well we're not quite sure where to put these because they're not really adult. They're not really child and they're kind of witchcraft, but they're not because they've got murders and history on them. <laughs> and basically I've just been shelved for four years by lots of major publishers. So because friend, they don't know where to put you. Yeah. Um, my wife has told me where I can go a few times, but I don't think that's really for public consumption. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I find it interesting because I think that what you're describing are stories that kind of cross over different genres. So I don't know. In my opinion, I would think that that would be, I don't know. And I'm ignorant because I'm not published myself yet, but I would think that that would make it easier to, to sell it because you can sell it to multiple groups. Harder. What I found out about the big publishers is if you're not doing something somebody already has done that they can put in a pigeon box and flog out because they know it's sold in the past. Mm-hmm. It's not going to touch you. It's actually one of the things that I really enjoyed about the books because mm. I've been reading them is the fact that it is it has the horror elements to it. There's scary, there's demons, there's magic, there's witchcraft. It's like all of my favorite things, history, all of it. It's just in one place. And it's funny, too. Like, it's just, I don't know. I'm really enjoying it. I'm glad that you went the, uh, did you end up going self-published? Is that how yeah. these are coming out now? Well, how that kicked off was because of Steve Belshaw, my editor, who, is, who also happened to be my schoolmate from the age of 11. Hmm. And I went one way into graphic design and he went the other way into literature. And then when we met up again years and years later, because we lost contact and we met pure by, purely by chance, um, he said, what are you up to? So I said, graphic design, da 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 Oh, I'm, I'm writing these. And I gave them him, and for months he didn't touch them. And I said, haven't you read any of them yet? He went, no. Why not? He said, I'm frightened to, Rick. Because if they're a pile of crap, 
I wanted to tell my friend from the age of 11. That's a pile of crap. Oh, that's the and worst. And is very black and white. If he sees it and he doesn't like it, oh dear. And he's a film critic. And he's been taken off so many TV things because he just sees it as he sees it. <laughs> so he read one and came back and I just got a, a one-line email from him. And it was, and I don't think you'd be able to print it, but bastard. Said, what was that for? Said, You've written what I wanted to write. <laughs> I went to university to study literature. I went over to Cambridge studying English literature. And you've done what I wanted to do. That's amazing. <laughs> That's tremendous. So how, and then, but then we sprang into the audiobooks, And that was by pure chance as well. Um, I was working with some guys down in another part of Manchester. And every day I was going down the motorway. Uh, wait, freeway, sorry. <laughs> from uh, from where I live to the other side of Manchester and back again. So I'd have CDs playing in the car. And there was one particular band from the early 90s called Alpine Stars. They were like, they were forums of the Chemical Brothers. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because the Chemical Brothers had seen them play, had seen Alpine Stars play in Manchester because the Chemical Brothers studied in, in Manchester ah, and okay. thought, I like that. We're going to have a slice of that. Anyway, it's a little-known band called Alpine Stars. And I've got the CD playing, and I pull up at my office, and another guy who's sharing the offices with us, his friend was there. His friend's called Steve Atch. Uh, he's the tour manager for the Stone Roses. No, you don't, no you're not aware of the Stone Roses? No. Nope. Big, big indie band. They've toured all over the world. Huge thing. And Steve's involved heavily in the music industry. He heard the music in my car and went, bloody hell, it's the Alpine Stars. I've not heard of them for years. Oh, great, great. He said, have you heard what Glyn, one of the members, is doing now? No. Goes into his car and gives me four CDs. This is what he's doing now. Oh, great. Thanks, Steve. And again, I suffered from the same thing. For weeks, I didn't listen to the CDs because I was frightened in case they didn't live up to the stuff they'd done previously. Okay, one night I'm driving home, cold, wet night, just going to the freeway, and thought, I'll put one on, what the hell, and then I had to pull off the freeway, because, oh boy, the first paragraph, well, the first verse on the CD was a paragraph from um, a paragraph from a chapter I'd written four weeks before, word for word. So. Whoa. Yes. So immediately I got on the phone, got off the, got off the road, phoned Steve Adjup and said, I want to meet Glenn. Get me to meet Glenn. And that's how Glenn and I met. He's the guy who does all the music and the audio. Oh, excellent. Um, so we <laughs> met. And it was one of those daft meetings. You know when you meet somebody and you felt like you've known them for years and years and years and years? Mm-hmm. And we were meant to have a half-hour meeting. And three hours later from the pub... <laughs> We, Glyn told me, right, we're doing audiobooks. And I said, Glyn, I have no money to do audiobooks. He said, no, no, you misunderstand. We're doing audiobooks. We're using my studio and we're doing audiobooks. I said, well, how are we going to afford a voiceover? He said, we'll find one. So I was talking, speaking to another friend and he said, I know the person for you, Steve Harris. Steve Harris is the guy who does the audio, the narration of the books. Well, he's a stand up comedian. So he read one of the stories and went, I like this, I want this, and that's how Steve got involved. 
<laughs> so everybody's doing things out of goodwill that we're all building this up for the future. And that's where that's we're fantastic. That is fantastic. <laughs> so all the graphics, the website uh, came about because um, I do some work with a web company. And Carl said to me, what are you up to? Tell him about Widdishans. He said, where's your website? I've not got one. You design it, I'll build it. So Carl's built the website <laughs> for gratis. Mm -hmm. uh, I do him the odd bits of graphics. Steve Harris is doing the narration because he believes in the project and wants to be part of it when it grows. Glyn's doing it because he believes it's going to be big and then he's that's his pension pot. <laughs> and I'm doing it because I'm in for the ride. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun when you get a project like that that other people believe in and buy into and clamor just to be a part of, even if it's in the early stages where there isn't money and it's not making yeah. money. It's something that you just want to get out into the world for people to yeah. become part of. And those are the kind of projects I think that eventually do make the money because there's something, you know, how can you have that many people that buy into and believe that something is going to work if it's not going to work? Right. Yeah. Well, the next one, the next book that's uh, just in the final production stage of audio, it's going to all the polishing on it. That's seven hours long. And the one after that is a prequel going back to the late 80s, early 90s called Triumph for the Bill, which is based on a German prisoner of war who is in the area. And everyone assumes he's a Nazi trying to establish the Fourth Reich in Widdershins. And that's 11 hours long now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that's all to do with the, the um, again, that's to do with the Arthurian link to the Mary Magdalene theme and the church, because there's lots of Arthurian things in the in the church as well. I mean, if you want any any graphical uh, stuff to back it up, I can I can happily send you loads of stuff down. And it's just mind blowing when you think when it's pointed out to you, and you look at the, um, the symbolism within the church and the area around it. You go, how can we've not seen that before? You, you know the you know yeah. the film that was out recently called Eat. Well, not recently, a few years. Eagle. The one about the, uh, the, the Roman soldiers being murdered in the Tutorberg Forest. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard about it. I haven't seen it yet. Right. In the UK, we had uh, what was called the Eagle of the Ninth. Because um, they, they the, that was the legion murdered in the Tutorberg Forest, the, the Ninth Legion. Right. Remember I told you before how Widdishans, Ainsworth, Widdishans, Bradshaw, Edgerton, is all off a Roman road? Mm-hmm. Right. In the early part, well, in the early... Year 100, thereabouts, 63, 83 AD. Um, 700 Roman soldiers disappeared between Manchester and Tadcaster in Yorkshire. Disappeared, gone, never found. They were taking with them six months' gold wages to York, which is one of the, Bericum, one of the main places. And also they were taking a votive eagle with them. A votive eagle made of 22 karat, 18, 22 karat gold and weighs about a kilo. Wow. And nobody's ever found it. All the gold. So in one of the stories which is coming out soon called I, Claudia, it's all about what happens if somebody finds a map <sighs> and the mayor gets hold of it. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's tremendous. I mean, that's one of the things yeah. that 
is really cool about this is it sounds like there's not ever going to be a shortage of stories. There's never going to be a shortage of things to talk about. Nail on the head there. Absolutely nail on the head. Because like between all of the history that's just baked in and then all of these like anecdotes you have of the people that are living there or have lived there, just it's a never ending, (laughs) never ending, exciting story. That's fantastic. We've got 30 odd books so far of which seven are complete and the others are at various stages of completion. Um, but what we're trying to do in, on every story, though, I want to bring in a different aspect of the occult and also different aspects of mythology. Like the Chinese takeaways based on um, my friend who, who runs it is a Chinese Buddhist. So it's the Chinese Buddhist take on their mythology in Widdishans. Um, the next one of the other stories, which is in production for um, audio now, is called Kalunga Kalunga, which is based on Brazilian voodoo. Because the vicar gets involved in a charity which ends up bringing voodoo dolls over from Brazil. <laughs> and they start running amok in Widdishans. <laughs> That's so, fantastic. So I want, I want to make sure that the world is local because there's no one place in the world you can go to now which is totally, totally well, apart from some of the Appalachians, which is totally, totally one culture and that's your go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. That's so true. And that was actually one of the questions I had for you was um, like, you're taking real religious practices and building Mm -hmm. that into this story. And I was really impressed with the amount of detail that went into your second book with the witchcraft and with the, like the angels and the tarot cards and everything and how like incredibly detailed that was represented. I was curious about like, how did you do that research? How did you learn some of that? Well, I, I read tarot cards anyway myself. So that's that's an easy, I mean, that's the soft option in, isn't it? Then because you do it yourself, you can understand the, the process of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got friends who are um, who, who practice Wicca, so they give me their steer on things. And I, get, and I run it past them before it goes anywhere to say, would you actually do this? Is this the right thing to say? And th- that's what I'm trying to do with whenever I involve a practice, um, it's to put it past somebody. And like, like I said, because the world is so local now, um, my, daughter's, my daughter's friend, her mother's from Brazil. So the Brazilian thing, it's, oh, what, how's that for Sarava? That's great, but you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And because there'll always be somebody who reads it, hopefully, who will know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you've not got it, and if you've not done your research, it'll stand up like a sore thumb. It's a bit like on the one of my favorite films, um, Throw Mama from the Train. You know, a writer writes, and mm-hmm. it's like the, the ship dove there, you know, and he turned that wheel <laughs> thing. If you get down to that level, you're going to get found out. <laughs> it shows. <laughs> yeah. But wheel, if you man. really want to know how to write something pithy, just go and read some of the stuff Mel Brooks wrote for himself. Not not just the comical sketches, but um, there's a couple of books. Of, um, there's one not written by Mel Brooks, but it's about him, and it's called the comedy of Mel, the comedy art of Mel Brooks, and it's fantastic. It's 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 a bible. It's a must read. Apart from all the occult books, um, yeah. <laughs> to go and have a look at. Look at stuff by Richard Cavendish. Rollo Ahmed, who wrote some stuff in the 30s, he's brilliant. He wrote only a couple of small books, but they're absolutely brilliant. 
It was a very detached view of the occult. He was a believer himself, but he could write in a very detached manner about it. And again, you've got all the Gerald Gardners and things like all the other yeah. standards. But Richard Cavendish is very good and Rollo Ahmed. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And that that is actually one of the things that I find very rare whenever you are reading something written by somebody who's very steeped in the lore and very steeped in uh, their beliefs for them to be able to take a step back and write this passionately about it and to write yeah. uh, in that manner where you don't feel, you know, that they're trying to sell you on that belief. That's, yeah. that's very, no difficult. exactly. It's very difficult to do. And uh, I think that makes that type of reading much more approachable. Mm-hmm. To allow you to draw your own conclusions, you know. Yeah. Uh, but see, when I was when me and Belsh were working together and he's doing the editing, I've always we've always got one belief system, one belief, and that is we do not denigrate anybody's belief, any anybody's path that they've chosen, whether it even be a Satanist. For for that person, that is the path. Right. And it's not for me to say what's right, what's wrong. It's it's a different take. Mm-hmm. 99% of belief systems are all going down the same path to the right. same goal. Yes. But um, my friend, my friend Zahid, um, he explained it to me and he said, look, we're all playing, we're all going to the, the end point in Snakes and Ladders, but some of us are playing Ludo, some of us are playing Monopoly, some of us are playing Snakes <laughs> and Ladders. <laughs> The rules are all different, yeah. but the end game's the same. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was a great way of putting it about. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Richard. Are you in uh do you are you in a particular hurry this evening? Because uh if you are, that's fine. But if not, what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity to uh, provide some links and, and that sort of thing, and then if you're okay with it, I, I'd sure. be I'd I'd love to do a second show with you. I'd I'd be honored. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and we have you on the phone, and I know Jeanette has a list of questions that we've barely touched. So I do. Sorry, <laughs> right. see that's my problem. I'm, I'm like, like I said, I'm like the guy from Black Hole Brian. You let me out of the hole, and then it's just <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I mean, honestly, I mean that's a compliment because if. if uh, if if I didn't feel that you had something to say that was interesting and we weren't having a good time, I'd be like, okay, let's wrap it up. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so for me to beg you for extra time is, is a rare occurrence. So, so absolutely. <laughs> so why don't we do that? We'll, um, we'll give the, the audience a break <laughs> until the next week and, uh, give us some, some links on where we can find your work and, uh, maybe where folks can interact with you, be it Twitter oh, no, or no, wherever you, you like. Get techie on me. I've got to, I've got to try and find technical links now. Oh God, anything, anything <laughs> well, more, we, we, more we, technical we, than a pencil yeah. lost. <laughs> well, we will put links to everything in the show notes. I just, you know, for someone that's on the treadmill I, or something, I always like yeah, to, uh, I actually have the links for okay. it. Oh <laughs> well, then we'll, we'll let Jeanette, we'll let Jeanette shave you this time. <laughs> so if you want to talk to Richard Ainsworth a little bit more about widow shins, you can find him at Twitter at widow shins. Um, and go to widowshins.com, W-I-D-D-O-W-S-H-I-N-S.com, and you'll find all sorts of bonus content, all about the books, all about where to contact him and everything. You can also find him on Facebook, 
And I think that's it. So Facebook slash Windowshins. There you go. <laughs> Most importantly, anybody, if you want to learn anything about humor, watch the 1968 producer's film. That is the film of all time. Oh, yeah, it's a great film. It's, yeah, it is. It's the most perfect comedy. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.